Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you, i.e. ones that came out this week, and one that I actually did not get to review last week that I'm going to attempt to review this week. So, I'm going to start off with the seemingly the only film that was released in theaters this week, or at least the only one that was released in theaters nationwide, and that is No Time to Die. This is the 25th official James Bond movie and the 27th James Bond movie overall. The reason I say it's official is because it was the one that was released by uh, the, the 25th one that was released by MGM, and those are the only official James Bond films. The other two was, were the original Casino Royale, which had an all-star cast including Peter Sellers and Woody Allen, which was, which was based on Ian Fleming's novel of the same name, but it was more of a parody of James Bond than it was an actual James Bond film. The other one was when Sean Connery reprised his role of James Bond in a film that was released by Columbia, not MGM, that was Never Say Never Again. But other than the original Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again, the other films that employed 007, James Bond, are official James Bond films released by MGM. And this is the fifth James Bond movie to star Daniel Craig. And from all accounts, including Daniel Craig's own interviews, this is probably going to be the last time that he is portraying James Bond. And he does in a lot of scenes, and I'm really going to try to hold my tongue and try not to spoil the movie because there are a lot of shocking moments in it, but there are moments where he really just puts the pedal to the floor and gets really banged up, arguably more banged up than any other actor who played James Bond previously. For example, the five, maybe even six actors who have played James Bond before Daniel Craig never got banged up. They were always suave. They always knew to say the right things, and they always wore a tuxedo that was blemish-free. Daniel Craig, just like in his other four previous James Bond films, says to hell with that and comes out as still James Bond, but definitely a lot more of an action star. This is the first... James Bond film that is directed by Carrie Jojo Fukunaga and who might I think be the first person of color and by color I mean Japanese descent although he is an American to direct a James Bond movie which is commendable it's actually his third feature film that he has directed total up to this point he had previously directed the 2011 version of Jane Eyre which I have not seen but that movie starred uh, Mia Wasikowska, uh, Michael Fassbender, and Jamie Bell, which is a very impressive cast for your first feature film. And Mr. Uh, Fukunaga also directed Beast of No Nation, which was a film that was a Netflix original, probably the first great Netflix original that came out in 2015. 
Uh, it was actually controversially not nominated for any Oscars when it came out, not even for Idris Elba for Best Supporting Actor or Abraham Atta as Best Actor, but for a sophomore film to to fall on to controversy for not being nominated, that's also really very impressive. Mr. Uh, Fukunaga has directed other <clears throat> films, or rather... He's directed episodes of TV shows and some short films up to this point, but Jane Eyre, Beasts of No Nation, and the most recent No Time to Die, the most recent 007 film, are, her, uh, are his only feature films to date. Unless he dies, they won't be his last either. But in No Time to Die, it takes, uh, it takes place sort of where the last James Bond film, Spectre, left off. James Bond has left active service, and his piece is short-lived when Felix Later, who is played by Jeffrey Wright, who we were introduced to in the first Daniel Craig James Bond movie, the 2006 Casino Royale, who is also an old friend from the CIA, turns up asking James Bond for help, leading Bond onto the trail of a mysterious villain armed with dangerous new technology. And arguably, unlike most other James Bond films where James Bond seems to be the most in control, in this film, he seems to have a lot of help from MI6, particularly from his, his boss, M, who's played in this movie not by Judi Dench, unfortunately, but by Ray Fiennes, and also his... Gadget Assistant Q, who's played in this film by Ben Wishaw. And Ben Wishaw is obviously not the first person to play Q, but when the other two people who played Q, the first one who was in literally 19 James Bond films before um, the world, uh, before Pierce Brosnan's Die Another Day is dead, and John Cleese basically retired after Die Another Day, there's got to be somebody else to take Q's place. There's also uh, Moneypenny, who is M's assistant and a good spy on her own, who's played by Naomi Harris, and also Nomi, who since James Bond retired, has taken on the moniker of 007, who's played by Lashana Lynch. And given that this is Daniel Craig's last time playing James Bond, we may see another actor play James Bond, but don't be surprised if we see Lashana Lynch play 007, although probably still with the real name Nomi, in a future film. But they all work together and create some really good tension in this film, particularly when it comes to investigating a an international terrorist by the name of Lutzifer Safin, who's played in this film with Evil Delight by Rami Malek. And Rami Malek, as you learn very early in the film, also has a history with one of James Bond's women, uh, Madeline, who's played in this film by Leah Seydoux. And Madeline we were introduced to in previous James Bond films, just like Jeffrey Wright, Leah Sadeau made her debut in the Daniel Craig version of Casino Royale. And what is uh, Rami Malek's character trying to do? Well, he is inflicting, 
Hang on. <coughs> ah, excuse me. Orange juice uh, throat right there. But anyway, so Rami Malek's character is um, a superbly named villain who is another heavily accented, scarred, monologuing Bond baddie who wants to watch the world burn. And he does this by using a rocket to send out a virus that could alter the DNA of most of the world's population except for a few people. Somehow he is able to withstand bullets as Madeline, when she was a a child, tried to shoot uh, Luce Cipher Saffin and he somehow survived. And I got to say that I'm going to try not to spoil too much of this movie because there are a lot of twists and a lot of turns. The The very beginning of this film and the very end of this film is fantastic. Absolutely unforgettable. But when you put together the very beginning and the very end of this film, it takes about 30 minutes. This film is a whopping 163 minutes, which for those of you who aren't doing your math, that's two hours, 43 minutes, which may make this the longest James Bond film to date. It's also one of the very few that's rated PG-13. And I do think that if they actually cut a few of the swear words out, they might have made this PG. But that's not initially my my problem with it. The, my, my biggest problem with it is, in the very middle, there is a ton of exposition, spoken either by Agent M, Agent Q, or Lute Cipher Safin, Rami Malek's character, himself. And I did find myself getting a little confused by what was going on. Granted, it was great to see actors from the previous four James Bond films like Jeffrey Wright, Ana de Armas, Lea Seydoux, uh, Naomi Harris, and all the rest reprise their roles in this film, which kind of made it feel a little bit sometimes like one of those shows where it's a flashback show where the... New segments take about 15 minutes to show, but then they're showing clips from previous episodes, so it doesn't exactly feel fresh either. So I I do think that for what the middle lacked, the very beginning and the very end of this film made up for in droves. And the ending most certainly shocked me. There were some moments in the film, which I'm going to try my best not to spoil, but I don't think that no time to die is Daniel Craig's best James Bond movie. I would probably say Skyfall is followed in a very close second by Casino Royale, but I would say no time to die comes third. And it does have a very interesting send off as well as Daniel Craig, Definitely trying more to differentiate himself from the more suave versions of 007, like, for example, Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan or Roger Moore than his previous contemporaries, especially Timothy Dalton, for instance. Because in this film, not only does he get really banged up, but he also begins to fall in love with one woman, a far cry from James Bond being a womanizer. So I'm going to end my description of the film right there. I do think it, the action scenes really work. I think that Daniel Craig works 
really well alongside such great supporting actors as Naomi Harris and Lashana Lynch, most definitely. Rami Malek does certainly stand out in terms of being an effective villain and not being a cliched Bond villain. And there also is a very brief, perhaps a too brief appearance from Christoph Waltz as Blofeld, uh, a role he is reprising from previous James Bond films, especially Spectre. His appearance is too brief. His fate is also too brief without spoiling too much. So No Time to Die is not a perfect James Bond movie, but I do think it's worth the wait, and it gets my rating of a checkout because Daniel Craig sends his version of James Bond out with a proverbial as well as a literal bang, but I'm not going to tell you what becomes of any of the characters, and I'm really holding my tongue here trying not to spoil this for you, but I do have to say that if you are going to watch this on the big screen, first of all, (laughs) if you haven't had a lot of sleep, bring something that's caffeinated because... This movie is nearly three hours, which makes it, I believe, the longest James Bond film to date. But also, you really have to pay attention to some of the exposition in the middle of this film in order to make sense of what James Bond is trying to stop from happening. But I do think that No Time to Die is a serviceable film, and I do think that Daniel Craig should be more proud of this film being the last James Bond film he is allegedly going to do more so than Spectre. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Queen Pins. This is a comedy that they tell us is inspired by a true story. And inspired by a true story is something that can be loosely used. And I think it was loosely used in this movie, which is more of a comedy than it is a drama, although it has some dramatic moments. But it's a movie about a pair, the synopsis says it's a pair of housewives, which is not actually true. There's one woman who's a housewife, and there's another one who isn't married. But they are friends, and they create a $40 million coupon scam. And one of the women is a housewife by the name of Connie, who's played in this film by Kristen Bell. She befriends a woman in her suburban Phoenix neighborhood by the name of Jojo, who's played by Kirby Howell Baptiste. And Kirby Howell Baptiste is a woman I haven't seen in very many other films, but she has had roles in TV shows like The Good Place, Barry uh, with Bill Hader, uh, and the Netflix original show Love starring... Paul Rust, and Jillian Jacobs. And I should also note that Queen Pins is not a Netflix original, even though it could have been, but it's actually a Paramount Plus original. And Paramount Plus has a lot of 
catching up to do when it comes to films, particularly original films that they're airing on their streaming platform. And they may not ever fully catch up to Netflix, but I did enjoy this film a lot more than the last Netflix original film that I saw, which was called The J-Squad, which was a Nickelodeon film as well, uh, starring the YouTube sensation Jojo Siwa. And I I could go into why I didn't like that film, but I'll probably save that for the worst of 2021 list. But anyway, getting back to this film, uh, Kristen Bell plays Connie, who is a housewife. Her husband, Rick, who's played by Joel McHale, is an IRS auditor. And Kristen Bell has been trying to conceive a child and has put up a lot of money uh, to a fertility clinic to bear a child to no effect. And this is probably one of the things that has led to a rift in her marriage to Rick. So she starts occupying herself by collecting coupons, and she ultimately finds that when she actually complains to a company by writing them a letter, and this movie does take place in 2021, so she actually writes a letter as opposed to an email, puts a stamp on the envelope, and sends it to the company, she finds that the companies, most of them, actually not only write her back, but also include a coupon for a a free whatever product of theirs about which she is complaining. So she realizes through some research that she can actually get these coupons through a printing factory in Chihuahua, Mexico. And she sets it up so that one of the factory workers can actually send her free coupons by mail. And she and her friend Jojo, who, as I said, were played by Kirby Howell Baptiste, realize that they can actually sell these coupons online. People will actually pay money for them and not and they can actually pay them in a very modern way like PayPal or Venmo. And they end up making a lot of bank. Now, they arouse they arouse the suspicion of a guy by the name of Ken, who's played by Paul Walter Hauser, who is a coupon inspector. It's a very thankless job because he actually has to go around to uh, supermarkets and find coupons, for example, that were counterfeit made in China and have an expiration date, for example, of November 31st, 2021. Now, not only has November 31st not come yet as of the date of this show, but there is no such date as November 31st for the same reason that there's no such date as October 32nd, for instance. And if you know about the Greco-Roman calendar, you probably already know why that is. So he eventually finds that the coupons that are coming in droves to a lot of these supermarkets are legitimate coupons. They are sometimes referred to erroneously in this film as counterfeit coupons. They're not counterfeit, though, because they actually come from the factory, and they're not they're not made by, for instance, hackers in China, for example. But whereas there are supposed to be at least a 1,000 of these free coupons per company that are being shifted into supermarkets all over the country, 
There are actually 15,000 that are renewed per, uh, per trans, uh, per year. So he eventually teams up with a postal inspector who contrary to popular belief actually does carry a gun. And this postal inspector is played by Vince Vaughn who takes mail fraud very seriously. And I do actually think that the, the scenes with Paul Walter Hauser and Vince Vaughn work, do well. I, rather, they, those actors work very well together. There are some scenes that were kind of not funny and involved gross-out humor, like, for example, when you find out that Paul Walter Hauser's character has regular bowel movements, and when he's not near a toilet at a certain time... Yep, you guessed it. He goes in a certain area, and it's not particularly funny. I didn't think the the movie needed that gag, but what the gross-out humor, the unnecessary gross-out humor, I might add, Paul Walter Hauser, who I think is a good actor, and I do think he is very funny in the movies where he's supposed to be funny, I, I thought that reducing his role to that kind of gross out humor really wasn't necessary and did take away from his character in the movie a little bit. But I thought what the gross out humor lacked, I thought that Kristen Bell and Kirby Howell Baptiste made up for by being a great team. And you, I actually found myself rooting for them to a certain extent, even though what they're doing is fraudulent. Now, I did say before that the coupons that they distribute via their online store are legitimate coupons that they got illegally, but they do actually find through a cybersecurity expert whose name is Tempe, who's played by Baby Rexa, that they have to assume various fraudulent identities and various fraudulent bank accounts in order to make a lot more money than they're ultimately making. So that's where the fraud comes in. Uh, but (laughs) that's probably where they get them in the most trouble, but they also get in into even more trouble when they assume that the money that is coming in is dirty money, even though, they're, the people who are sending the money are not mafia men or hitmen from uh, various third world countries. That would be dirty money. But the money that it's coming in is generally from everyday people who are looking to save a buck. But they don't really register that, and they end up taking the money, spending it on fancy things like Lamborghinis and... Um, assault rifles, which they sell to militia groups for a profit, and the money comes in clean. Now, what they're doing is kind of stupid, but it works well in the context of this film because they're a bit naive to raising this money illegally as well as spending it illegally, and it's the fact that they spend it on these luxury items that they don't need that arouse the suspicion of the the coupon inspector and the postal inspector 
in this film. So I think it all comes together really well. And the, the way the movie ends is fitting, but the movie doesn't end with any epilogue because this movie is fictitious. It is inspired by a true story, but it's not entirely based on a true story. And I don't exactly see postal workers breaking into a person's house in the middle of the night and pointing guns at somebody who is not armed, but maybe that happens. I don't know. I'm not a law enforcement inspector at all, but queen pins I thought was funny for a paramount plus original. I thought that it exceeded the last paramount plus original movie. I saw the J squad by a lot. I enjoyed the film. I thought it was funny. I thought that Kristen bell and Kirby Howell Baptiste worked together really well. I also thought Paul Walter Hauser and Vince Vaughn had good chemistry up to the point, up to the poop jokes, which because those are just not necessary, but I do give queen pins a moderate knockout because I thought it achieved what it needed to achieve, which was that it was funny. And Kristen bell probably turns in her funniest performance to date. And Kristen Bell is an actress who could probably go her entire career not necessarily being the comic relief in the film. For example, she was the titular Sarah Marshall in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, but she was the straight woman, and that worked for her in that film. However, she shows in this film that she is funny, and Kirby Howell Baptiste particularly has some funny moments, arguably more funnier moments than Kristen Bell does. And overall, the chemistry of the actors works a lot better than maybe some of the faults in the writing. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Starling. This is a Netflix original that is directed by the director Theodore Melfi, who has directed several short films, but is known for having directed two feature films. One was St. Vincent from 2014, which I did not see. And the other one was Hidden Figures from 2016, which I did see and was one of the best films of the year. So to have a film like Hidden Figures that was nominated for Best Picture and have that be your second feature-length film, that is quite impressive for Theodore Melfi. And that is a very tough act to follow, even uh, when you are directing the next film. But lo and behold, The Starling is the next film that Theodore Melfi has directed. And he has a very impressive cast, including but not limited to Melissa McCarthy, Chris O'Dowd, Kevin Kline, Timothy Oliphant, David Diggs, and others. And in this film, Melissa McCarthy plays a woman named Lily who is living alone, not because she's widowed or divorced, but because her husband, whose name is Jack, who's played by Chris O'Dowd, is depressed because of the loss of their infant child. 
And after Lily suffers this loss and her husband Jack is in the hospital getting the treatment, the, getting the psychological treatment that he needs, a combative starling, which is a small bird, takes nest beside her quiet home. The feisty bird taunts and attacks the grief-stricken Lily, and on her journey to expel the starling, she rediscovers her will to live and capacity for love. This movie has uh, two stars that are known for being in comedy films, primarily, Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd, but Melissa McCarthy does have chops for dramatic films as well. And films she's been in like Can You Ever Forgive Me um, are proof of that. And Can You Ever Forgive Me is a film that came out the same year that she also came out with two critically derided comedy films. Um, And those films included uh, The Happy Time Murders and Life of the Party. I saw both those films. I didn't think they were nearly as bad as other critics and some audience members thought they were. But Can You Ever Forgive Me certainly made up for that. And Melissa McCarthy did start out this year doing a disappointing film, which was directed by her husband, Ben Falcone, called Thunder Force. As for Starling, I do think that Melissa McCarthy acts pretty well in the film, but I wasn't quite sure from watching it whether it was a comedy or a drama. It certainly dealt with some very heavy uh, topics. For example, mental illness and also the death of an infant, uh, which are not very funny things. So I think from those heavy topics, there wasn't really a lot of room for comedy. And I don't exactly know if the Starling was trying to um, be a film that... For example, the, the the purpose of the film was that the the bird, this very combative bird, gave Melissa McCarthy's character a new perspective on life. I d- didn't quite understand that. I mean, the bird comes out as Lily, Melissa McCarthy's character, is doing yard work and knocks her right in the head. And you learn from a charismatic veterinarian whose name is Dr. Larry Fine, who's played by Kevin Klein. And the reason that Melissa McCarthy is befriending Kevin Klein's character is because she needs a psychologist and she's referred to by, uh, referred to a veterinarian who used to be a psychologist. But anyway, um, you learn from Kevin Klein's character, who is a veterinarian that starlings are, territorial by nature, but you learn that the starling is territorial because he or she, I I don't know what sex the starling is. I, I presume it's a, she is protecting her three baby starling birds who are up in a nest on a branch on a very high tree, far from where Melissa McCarthy's character is doing her yard work. So I don't know why the Starling would be territorial for something within a 50-mile radius, but then again, I'm not an expert on birds either. But the parts where the Starling knocks Melissa McCarthy in the head, are they funny? 
I don't exactly know. It, it seems a little bit more contrived to me than I would think. But I did think it was funny, actually, when Melissa McCarthy takes a football helmet and wears it while she's doing her yard work. And it, the football helmet only fails when she gets a ladder and begins to and discovers what the Starling is protecting. But I do think it kind of goes through that predictable moment where the Starling gives Melissa McCarthy's character a new lease on life. And while I do think that the, the Starling is the point of the movie and, and serves as a MacGuffin, the movie didn't exactly need that bird to make a lot of its points. And I did actually find that some of the scenes with Chris O'Dowd's character, Jack, who is Melissa McCarthy's character's husband, some of them were particularly realistic when it came to mental health and how one struggles with that, at least as far as I know. And the primary scene that wasn't realistic was when Chris O'Dowd is taking medication from a nurse um, he, he swallows the water in front of her and she walks away only that Chris O'Dowd has the pills hidden under his tongue. I would imagine that any nurse with even who even graduates last in his or her class would know that if somebody didn't want to take their pills and they just did it for a show to look under their tongue first. So I could already tell, even though I'd never been in a mental institution and hadn't experienced that kind of um, challenge in my life, I would know that somebody would know to look under the tongue for that certain medication. So the Starling is, I said it was a Netflix original. I don't actually know if that's true, but it did premiere on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. I can't exactly tell you what date because I don't have that information for you right now. But it's a serviceable film. But again, I don't exactly think that it's a great film. But I do think that um, Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd did what they could with it. They did act well. And I did like the supporting performance by Kevin Klein. So I give the Starling my rating of a checkout. I think that it's hindered by its predictability, its contrived circumstances, and also the fact that it didn't need a bird to convey the same message. Or if they were going to use the bird, they could have at least made it a little bit more serviceable than knocking somebody in the head who's who's the main character in this film. But That's just my take on the Starling.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is actually not a movie. It's more like a special. And the movie slash special is Muppets Haunted Mansion, which is a Disney Plus original that began streaming on the service on October 8th. And I've said in my segment what's coming up next when I've mentioned specials that were premiering on such platforms as Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, and all the rest, that I don't review specials because they're not movies. However, given how much I enjoyed Muppets Haunted Mansion, I may make an exception with specials from now on. I All I know is that I was dying to see Muppets Haunted Mansion, one, because it's Halloween, and I like a good... I like a good, fun Halloween or movie or special. And two, I am a huge Muppets fan. Muppets Haunted Mansion clocks in at 52 minutes. And truth is, if they had added 20 more minutes of this, I would have been absolutely happy with that because it is a film that is, or it's, it's a special that is certainly worth watching. It is directed by Kirk Thatcher. Kirk R. Thatcher, I should say, who has an extensive history with the Muppets. He started out actually directing uh, a few episodes, actually, of Crank Yankers, which is kind of the anti-Muppet show, but he also went on to direct TV movies such as It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas Movie, which was okay, and also The Muppets Wizard of Oz, a Muppet Christmas Letters to Santa, and some other Muppet-related um, episodes and specials as well as shorts. He also actually directed the video short to The Muppets Singing Bohemian Rhapsody, which was a viral sensation when it came out in late 2009. And when I saw that, I thought to myself, oh, this is so great, The Muppets are back. Well, the Muppets have had a little bit of a hard time over the last couple of years. Since Disney acquired them, Disney has not given them, I think, as much attention as much as their other uh, acquired properties like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars. They came out with the 2011 film The Muppets, which was delightful and one of my favorite films of that year. Uh, words on film did not exactly exist back then, but if it had, I would have counted the Muppets as one of my top 10 favorite films of 2011. And I still stand by that. They later came out with the feature film Muppets most wanted, which was a bit of a disappointment, but watching Muppets haunted mansion made me feel like this was the film that Muppets most wanted should have been. It had cameos from various, well-known actors like Will Arnett, Taraji P. Henson, Darren Chris, Yvette Nicole Brown, um, John Stamos, Alfonso Ribera, and the very last on-screen appearance of Ed Asner, God Rest His Soul, in addition to um, various legendary Muppeteers who are reprising their roles in their various Muppet characters. But... Muppets Haunted Mansion is not only based on the Muppets, but it's also based on the ride, the Haunted Mansion. And if you've ever been on that ride at Disneyland or Walt Disney World, you will see some features of that ride that are very familiar in this movie. 
And this movie actually does a better service to the Haunted Mansion than the 2003 Haunted Mansion movie starring Eddie Murphy, which was a tremendous disappointment. But this movie does take place on Halloween night, and Gonzo, who is accompanied by Pepe the King Prawn, is challenged to spend one night in the Haunted Mansion. Now, he doesn't go to the Haunted Mansion ride at Walt Disney World. He goes to a Haunted Mansion, which you learn if you're familiar with the Disney World ride, is very similar to the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney World or Disneyland, except it has a lot more Muppets. And I think that people who are fans of the Muppets will not be disappointed by this film. I think what this, what Muppets Haunted Mansion does better than Muppets Most Wanted is not only does it make the most out of its celebrity cameos and allow the humans in this film to be funny, and unlike unlike the actor who played Dominic Bagi in um, Ricky Gervais in Muppets Most Wanted, everyone who's acting in this film who's not a Muppet actually looks like they want to be in the film. They do a great job. Either they're playing ghosts or they're playing bystanders, but they they just do a great job with what they're there to do. But the Muppets really take center stage here, and I think about every well-known Muppet you could think of has a cameo in this film. And I love this I love this special because I love the Muppets and I have very fond memories of going on the Haunted Mansion ride when I went to Disney World years ago. And hopefully I'll be able to go back again sooner or later. But Muppets Haunted Mansion is a great special for Halloween. Uh Gonzo took center stage here, but I think it was fitting that that Gonzo um took the lead in this film as opposed to Kermit. And by the way, Kermit is not puppeteered by uh, Steve Whitmire anymore. He's puppeteered by Matt Vogel. And even though Matt Vogel is a certified Muppeteer, I don't like the way Kermit's voice sounds. It, it just, it sounds like one of those effeminate people from family guy rather than, closer to Jim Henson when he puppeteered Kermit. But that's my only problem with Muppets Haunted Mansion. I otherwise really enjoyed it, and Muppets Haunted Mansion gets my rating of a knockout. It is a great film to watch for Halloween. There are actually some surprisingly scary moments in it, which I was not expecting. And there was one scene, I won't spoil it, with John Stamos in it, which shocked me the same way in Pee-wee's Big Adventure the scene with Large Marge did. And for those of you who've seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I don't think the Muppets Haunted Mansion is too scary for kids. And adults, particularly those who grew up watching the Muppets, will certainly be satisfied with this film, arguably more than Muppets Most Wanted, which wasn't a bad film, but it could have been better.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment of the show, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters and streaming uh, for the week of October 11th through October 15th, 2021. And the first film that I guarantee I will see for you is a film that will be in theaters. I don't know if it's going to be on streaming, but check it out if it is. The movie is Halloween Kills. And Halloween Kills is based on the Halloween movies that have been out in theaters for the last 43 years. It is about the saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode that continues in the next thrilling chapter of the Halloween series. It is a movie that is directed by David Gordon Green, who directed the Halloween movie from 2018, which was a hit, and it was a sequel to the Halloween movie from 1978, and it was the third Halloween movie in which Jamie Lee Curtis co-starred or starred, depending on your uh, point of view. And David Gordon Green has actually directed a diverse array of films, including independent favorites like George Washington and All the Real Girls, as well as some silly comedies like Pineapple Express and Your Highness, the former of which was funny, the latter of which, eh, not so much. But David Gordon Green is trying his hand now at horror, and the primary thing that disappointed me about his Halloween from 2018 was it was a sequel to the 1978 version, but it was called Halloween. It had the exact same name. It wasn't Halloween the next chapter or Halloween 40 years later, which it should have been called. And there were also some other disappointing things within the film itself, as well as things that were incongruent with other Halloween sequels. But Jamie Lee Curtis reprises her role in the film as Laurie Strode, and she co-stars along with Judy Greer, Andy Matichak, and James Jude Courtney. I have not seen all the Halloween movies, but I have seen the original 1978 version. That's a classic. I saw the one from 2018. And I'm going to see this one, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The other film that I am guaranteed to see, I will make damn sure I see it, is a film called The Last Duel. This is a film that is directed by Ridley Scott, and the script for this film was co-written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, both of whom star in this film. And this is the first time that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon have been in a movie together literally since Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back in 2001. It has been, it's hard to believe, because they used to be in a lot of movies together, like uh, School Ties, um, Goodwill Hunting, Dogma, Chasing Amy, and of course Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, as I mentioned. But they're reunited again uh, for this one, so who knows? Who knows how this movie will be, but the movie is about King Charles VI, who declares that Knight Jean de Caragas settled his dispute with his squire, 
by challenging him to a duel. This sounds very Shakespearean. I don't know if it's based on a true story. But Matt Damon is the primary star in this. Ben Affleck is more of a supporting actor in, in the film. But it also co-stars Adam Driver, who is a great actor. He has proven that uh, time and time again. Jodie Cormer and Harriet Walter. The Last Duel is a movie that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters is a film that is called Bergman Island. This is about a married couple who retreat to the island that inspired Ingmar Bergman to write screenplays for their upcoming films when the lines between reality and fiction start to blur. You can tell that this film is made by somebody who loves movies because how else would Ingmar Bergman be incorporated into a feature film or a modern day feature film? But the movie stars uh, Vicky Kreps, Tim Roth as the couple, Grace Del Rue, and Mia Wasikowska. Uh, so a lot of good actors in this film. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is one called Needle in a Time Stack. Let me say that again. Needle in a Time Stack. I don't know what a time stack is, but I guess it's a play on a haystack. But time stack, I've never heard of that. But it's a it's a movie about another troubled married couple, Nick and Janine, who live in marital bliss until Janine's ex-husband warps time to try to tear them apart. As Nick's memories disappear, he must decide what he's willing to sacrifice in order to hold on to or let go of everything he loves. I want to see this film. That sounds like an amazing premise. Uh, the movie stars Frida Pinto, Leslie Odom Jr., Orlando Bloom, and Cynthia Erivo. So a lot of great actors in this film as well. But I cannot guarantee that this film is going to come out in theaters near me, so I cannot guarantee that I'm going to see this film either. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called Hard Luck Love Song. This is a gritty love story about a charismatic but down-as-luck troubadour living out of cheap motels and making bad decisions. The movie stars Michael Dorman, Sophia Bush, Dermot Mulroney, and RZA. Yes, RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. I don't know if I'm going to see this one. It sounds like a film that would take place in Nashville, but I don't know where it would take place. It could take place in Nashville. It could take place in L.A., New York. I don't know, but it sounds like an interesting premise. But I can't guarantee if I'm going to see this film, but if I see it uh, out in a theater near me, I will review it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another film that is subject to be released in theaters that is an animated film that may be released in theaters nationwide, and it is called Extinct. It is about an animal duo whose names are Op and Ed. Op Ed. Well, anyway, they accidentally time travel from the Galapagos Islands in 1835 to present-day Shanghai. They make their way through the city in confusion and make the horrifying discovery that the species to which they belong became extinct shortly after. That's pretty dark for an animated film. And the movie, which is probably made in China, although its directors are David Silverman and Raymond S. Percy, neither of whom are Chinese, it might be an American-Chinese 
uh, collaboration. But the American stars of the film, or the voice actors, include Adam Devine, Rachel Bloom, Ken Jeong, and Zazie Beetz. I am also intrigued to see this film, but I don't know if it is going to be released in theaters near me. If it is, I will try my best to see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Now, normally I only talk about the coming week of movies, but I'm also going to briefly talk about a film that's coming out the week after, i.e. the week of October 17th through 22nd, 2021. There is one film that I will see, But one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read the book first before seeing the film. The movie is Dune, which is based on the novel of the same name by Frank Herbert. And the the novel Dune was and still is considered a pillar of science fiction novels. But it is very long and it is very, very dense. The paperback version of Dune is 500 pages, but I will tell you this right now, my captive listening audience, I will read the book and I will see the movie before it comes out on October 22nd. I have to, I absolutely have to, but the movie clocks in at, um, 155 minutes, which is two hours and 35 minutes, which surprisingly is shorter than the James Bond film that came out, No Time to Die. That is astonishing to me. But that is my goal to read the 500-page novel Dune before the movie comes out on October 22nd. But I just wanted to let you know that that is what I intend to do. So I'm going to give you a brief um, synopsis of films that are being released on Netflix for the week, this week of October 11th through October 18th, excuse me, October 15th, 2021. And I'll go right to Friday because I don't have a lot of time. So of the films that are going to be premiering on Netflix, there is The Four of Us, there is The Trip, and there's also a a film that's called Karma's World that's called a family premiere, but I can't tell you exactly whether that's going to be a film or if it's going to be a special or even a TV series. The site that I'm going to does not tell me, but the other Netflix original film that's going to be premiering on Friday, October 15th on Netflix is the forgotten battle. And I wish I had time to tell you the synopses, but I don't, but I will see at least one of these films and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.